Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the mailbag. Come on in. My name is Marcus Speller, and that guy in the corner is Andy Brassel. Hello, I'm not in the corner. Well, Andy, it's uh, it's a circular room. You've given it away. Um, <laughs> we're, we're, of course, recording remotely, just in case anybody's panicking. But nonetheless, welcome to the mailbag, or as some like to call it, Andy's Deep Bath. Um, we have some wonderful questions from your good selves to, to get through. Uh, but first and foremost, a question from me, Andy. How the dickens are you? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty good. Not quite dancing on the ceiling, but I'm sure I will mm-hmm. be by the end of it. Mm-hmm. And why would you be dancing on the ceiling, Andy? Well, because I'll be full of joy from the listeners' questions. <laughs> I thought there was a little uh, a little Lionel Richie uh, quote or fact coming, but that's... We've started off on a bad note, ladies and gentlemen, quite disappointing. But <laughs> let's see if Dan2008 can, can pick us up with this question. Dan says, with all the speculation over the last few months, link it, well, a fair few months, of course, Dan, you, Dan, this was an email, so so might not be fresh off the press, but still it's relevant. Um, with all the speculation over the last few months linking Ralph Ranick to Milan, how likely do you think this is and what impact could it have at Milan? Of course, Andy, at the moment, the, the rumour mill is is a little bit more hushed due to the to, to the obvious but but Ranić to Milan was was you know it was it was getting its fair share of airing that that little story. Yeah, and um, <clears throat> he, he's not denied that there's been interest that there've been conversations between the two. Um, he's been studying Italian as well, which uh, I think is 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 quite interesting. Um, but in the short to medium term. He's someone who already speaks perfect English, which uh, allows him to uh, communicate on a level. And certainly that's important for for Milan and the fact that they want to have international projection as they rebuild themselves. Um, I don't think that this interest is necessarily a, a knock on Stefano Pioli, although a lot of people have not been convinced by him. The fact is Milan want to rebuild and they want to have a rethink. And I think this is a really interesting candidacy and it would be really interesting if if he were to take the job, which, I mean, nothing's certain in these times, but I, I would still think it's more likely to, to happen than, than not. I think and what's been interesting... Are you not a little bit surprised, though? Are you not a bit surprised that someone like Ralph Ranić, who he's obviously a big name, but as far as I'm aware, he's managed... The, his, his whole managerial career has been in Germany... And I don't think he's won a league title. Obviously, he's had a little bit of success. Was it a Schalke? He won, you know, the cup or something like that. But that was a little while ago. Now he's sixty-one. I'm, I'm surprised that that Milan are. are I suppose this would be seen as quite an exciting appointment. I think it'd be a solid one, but I, it doesn't sort of capture my imagination that much. I think it's really exciting, and I think it's because not just. Is he someone who um, would be good as a coach, and he would be coming back to coaching? We have to say mm-hmm. that because he's he's the head of sport for for Red Bull at the moment, which means he's almost a sort of sporting director, stroke head of policy for all the various Red Bull franchises. Um, he's he's someone who would provide a long term vision. For, for Milan and so many of the recent appointments for them have been to try and get the fans on side now we know the the ownership 
um, side of, of of the club. It's, it's it's all been a bit harem scarum the way that Elliot um, have sort of inherited the club after the previous owner's default on on payments. But this would show a plan beyond just trying to dazzle the fans by getting Maldini back in the fold and by getting Boban back in the fold. I mean, you know, where is... What about Gattuso? Get Gattuso back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, why Why not? He's... he's like, I'll tell, tell you what, Gattuso's safely caged in his, uh, <laughs> his, his own little madhouse, I think. So um, he's, he's fine in Naples for the moment. But I think this is what Ranić's about. It's, it's, it's the fact that it's not just about judging him on his, his coaching record, and, and he is a good coach. It's it's about judging him on his overall vision. Now, the idea has been that, that they wouldn't appoint him as head coach. It would be almost an old-school manager with someone who's got um, responsibility for the sporting direction of the side as well as coaching the team. And that, to me, feels like the sort of streamlining that Milan could do with. Um, he's someone who um, would focus on younger players, who would focus on developing players. And certainly with the, the financial mess that Milan have been in in the last couple of years, um, that idea of, of, of building from the bottom and building a culture, I think is really important. That's why he's attractive to them. And he's someone who's kind of kept his hand in with coaching. I mean, he's he's coached Leipzig in uh, two of recent seasons. One when he was kind of a placeholder for um, Julian Nagelsmann while he was um, playing out his last year at Hoffenheim, and before that, he was the coach for uh, Leipzig when they got they got promoted to the top flight. So, I think he's used to dealing with. Um, a variety of different situations. Of course, um, he's well remembered in Italy for that incredible Schalke win at San Siro in the Champions League against Inter. You mm. remember Dejan Stankovic scoring that brilliant goal for miles yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. And people always forget to add that Schalke went on and won that game 5-2, which yeah. was absolutely extraordinary on on their their way to the Champions League semi-finals against, against Manchester United. So um, he's someone who has uh, the respects of, of big players. I think that's clear. But he also has a vision for how the club should start to look after itself. The, the you know too much of of Milan's recent history has just been hand to mouth and, and they can't go mm. on like that. I, I think they need a plan for how they um, develop a, a culture of playing of um, bringing through players that are going to be the backbone for, for years to come. And, you know, they, they did that in the past. And Maldini himself is 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 the perfect example of that. Um, they don't want to be, and in fact, they're incapable of spending at the top end of the, of, of the transfer market. So they need to get more value for money and they need to really grow assets. And presumably they'll hope to sell those on in the future as well. I mean, it is an enormous job to take on. I, that, that is the only thing I would say. I, I think you look at the fact that um, football has moved away from that idea of an Uber manager, that because uh-huh. there's so much complication in terms of scouting and transfers and negotiating contracts and all that sort of stuff, it's generally felt, and it's something that I would agree with, that you need a sporting director and a, a head coach. But what I would imagine is he's going to be the guy who sets policy and then maybe coaches the first year or the first two years 
to push them in the right direction on the pitch. So everyone's on the same page as him. And then I would imagine he'd bring a new coach into the fold, very much in in his own image or in the image that, that he's set up for for the club. Yeah. I, I, th- I think this idea of like establishing a new culture is really sensible. It's sort of outside the box thinking they need to get Milan running again in the in the medium term if they're gonna go up to towards being great. And I, I think the interesting thing is throughout the speculation, he's not just not denied it. He said, well, we'll see where we are after COVID-19 and its effects have passed. But if I'm going to take this job, I'm going to need the right influence. Um, I'm going to need the right help. He wants to know that he's going to have genuine influence and he is going to be able to set that agenda rather than someone who's just brought in to look like they're doing something. And I think it shows that they're a way down the line if he's saying, right, this is exactly what I'll need to make this work, which is what he's saying. He also needs a lot of Red Bull to guzzle before, during and after games. Let's be absolutely clear about that. <laughs> but, uh, okay, well, I understand what you mean, Andy. I, I suppose I was being a bit harsh because I too have fallen into the trap of some of those Milan fans and bigwigs and I just want Paolo Maldini or somebody like that to come in and manage the club, which probably wouldn't be a good idea. And maybe Big Ralph, King Ralph, is is just the man to, uh, to, to guide Milan back into uh, the Champions League, something like that. So you've convinced me. Give him the job, damn it all. Um, move on to. Let's hope uh, he doesn't break the internet while he's doing it. I would be surprised if he had those capabilities, but my goodness, if he does, <laughs> then he'll then we'll call him Thanos or something. Let's move on to uh, an email from Mickey Kabbalah, who says, uh, "Hey boys, uh, don't know whether it was that tone, Mickey, but I've chosen to think it is. Thanks for all the great content over the past few with Mickey Kabbalah. Um, got a couple of questions about Dortmund today. Oh, do you? First, what's happened to Paco Alcasa? Last year, he was an excellent addition to the team, and only one season later, he went back to Spain. Paco Alcasa, the super sub, Andy, his scoring record is quite impressive, especially for the Spanish national team. But what's going on with young Paco? Um, well, uh, it was a disappointment for Dortmund um, that they had to let him go. In the end, um, he wasn't getting enough playing time and he was frustrated by that. He wasn't starting enough. And I I think, well, there'd been a bit of a fracture of trust, I think, between uh, the coach, Lucien Favre, and Alcácer himself because it was basically based on his his physical fitness. And this was something that dogged the whole time he was at Dortmund. The the way he was eased in uh, when he arrived at the club, if we go back to, to 2018, Five said from the very beginning, and you've got to bear in mind, he's a guy who has not played regularly for a couple of years. So we're going to have to build him up all over again. And I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, you you look at the fact in, what, two years at, at Barcelona, he started what, I don't know, 13, 14 league games, which is yeah. nothing really. He's and never going to was- start that much for them though, was he? No, he he wasn't. But I think also, he's such a Barcelona, good sub. He's such a good sub as well to bring on that. He sort of uh, he sort of shot himself in the foot there a bit. No, well, he, he became a good impact sub because he had no other option. You know, Favre mm. said, you know, you're, you're not you're not fit enough to start games. 
so you're not going to start games for for the for the moment. And it took ages for him to start his first game for Dortmund. And if if you look at the amount of games that he started in a season that are a half for Dortmund, I mean, in the Bundesliga, what? 16, 17 games? Not mm. not a lot. And there was always real doubt over his, his stamina. He had an Achilles problem that kind of dogged him in the first half of, of, of this season as well. And that's where the frustration really grew. But I think Favre was absolutely right to ease him in. One, because you're right, he does have the the pace and the finishing skills to be an impact player, particularly in the in the Bundesliga. I mean, it's different coming on for Barcelona, isn't it? Because if you're coming on for Barcelona in the last 25 minutes, the mm-hmm. game's dead nine times well, out of 10 anyway. Well, it's either dead or much is expected of you. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. And um, I think the difficulty for him is he needs to be a centre-forward. And that's what that that's what did work for him at Dortmund. The mm-hmm. fact that he was their only really penalty box player They've got a lot of nine and a half type players, haven't they? Royce, Goetze, guys like that who aren't really out and out strikers. So he filled a need for them. And and that's Mm. why it's so disappointing that it didn't ultimately work out on a lasting and sustainable level. But I think Favre was right, not just in terms of fitness to drip him in in that first season in 18-19, but in terms of where he was at mentally. Because mm-hmm. the time at Barcelona really crushed him. And, you know, you can say that you go in with your eyes open, you know, you're not going to start. But he was someone who really needed to play as a centre forward, not as a, a wide player. I mean, of course, they wanted Alex Lacazette to go and back up um, the, the the front three of um, uh, Messi, Suarez and Neymar when he was still at Lyon. And mm-hmm. Lacazette was, or no, I'm not, I'm not going to play off the bench and, and that's it, which I think is fair enough. And a lot of top strikers would share the same view. But Lacazette would have suited that better if he could have agreed to do that because he's not compromised when he's not a centre-forward. If you play him wide, he can still do the job. He can still get through loads of work. He's physically mm-hmm. stronger, all those sort of things. Whereas Alcacer, being stuck out wide, kind of negated him so there was never really a natural fit and you're right it's not just that he wasn't going to start it's that there was never going to be a situation where everyone else was playing around him which I, I no, think is a, is, is a massive issue because because yeah. he is essentially a penalty box player so I think it was not only a poor choice from him to go to Barcelona but it was a poor choice for them to buy him as well, someone yeah, who would you, have been capable as backup for those guys you, yeah, you can't blame you obviously can't blame him. Not that you are, Andy. You're not one to ever play the blame game. But um, but at Barcelona, you know, the front three they had at that time, just so people are reminded, obviously Messi, Neymar, and Suarez. So it's never going to happen. And that type of striker, as as you mentioned. But he's now at Villarreal, and he he moved there only in January this year. Uh, the signing of um of of Haaland for Dortmund, I think, was. Really, the sort of the final nail in um, in his in his coffin, at Dortmund, if you will, uh, and 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 of course, uh, what's happened with um with the, this virus and lockdown and so on, it's it's been very unfortunate because at, at Villarreal, I mean, he's twenty six years old. He scored on his debut, scored a couple of goals in in a handful of games. You thought to yourself, oh, maybe now he might be able to kick on because he was a big signing for them. I think what was he twenty million, twenty five million euro, yeah. something like that. 
Um, and, and of course, it obviously pales into insignificance uh, with with everything that's going on. But in in the in the sort of uh, specific context of him, it's a it's a real shame that uh, he, again he's been held up because at Villarreal, you know, could have we and we still could yet see him kick on Andy and and, and become the starter and the striker that he's promised to uh, to show in in previous seasons. Yeah, I agree. And uh, Villarreal is, I think. A club, a situation, a team, and a place that, that that really suits him because, of course, he he did have all those successful years at, at Valencia, and he's he's a local guy. It's just up the road. I think to be back with friends and family is 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 important, especially in the situation that that he's been in. And I think that the the fact that they have that mix of possession and directness would would really suit him and i i think he will be a a durable medium term to long term su- success there um but it it is a case of getting over dortmund as well because you know this was a situation in which he played for a club that got 80,000 in every week who were genuinely going for trophies uh so you know i, I think it is a bit of a a bit of a knock to the pride, you know, maybe mm. I'm not considered a player yeah. who can like lead the line for a team that's challenging for trophies because Villarreal, they're challenging for Europe, but are they mm-hmm. challenging? Well, they're not challenging for the league, are they? So yeah. it's a sort of reordering of, of where you sit in the, in, in, in the football food chain. You know, even if Holland hadn't have arrived, I mean, that gave them the opportunity to ink the deal for Alcacer, but he wanted to mm-hmm. go anyway. You know, he felt like he wanted to go back to Spain. He felt like he wasn't given a proper opportunity. Dortmund were a bit exasperated because they felt he was never fit and he wasn't really durable enough. So mm-hmm. really, I think he doesn't just need to get Dortmund out of his system. He needs to get mm-hmm. the last three, four years out of his system. And he will be expected to play a lot of games for, for VRL. As you say, he's going to be their, their main guy. So I wonder if really for a player like him, this opportunity almost unexpectedly as it's arisen, for a little mini pre-season might not be such a bad thing for him. Yeah, very true. And also as well, you're right to say those those things about maybe not challenging for honours and so on, but he started in a cup final for Barcelona. Yeah, okay, it was... Um, sort of three years ago now, but he scored and also started in a yeah. cup final for Dortmund only last year, and and scored as well against Bayern in the final. So it's not a bad CV, you know. So um, so come on, Paco, take a bit of heart from there. It's Alcácer going for goal. I don't believe this. With surely the last kick of the game, Paco Alcácer completes his hat trick. Speaking of remembering the good times and scoring big goals in cup finals, we move on to um, to Mickey's second question. What's behind Mario Goetz's fall from grace? He had some great seasons with Klopp and, of course, scored the World Cup winner in Brazil against Argentina. Um, so what's going on? What's going on with Mario, Andy? Well, I think there are two major things for, for Mario Goetz, and both of them are reasonably well-publicised. Uh, firstly, the move to Bayern. Um did he did he did he take it too young? Uh, I think there's there's an argument for that. 
I mean, it was a real shock to Dortmund in 2013 when he used the release clause in his contract to to, to go to, to, to Bayern. But, you know, it was an enormous leap for him. I mean, he arrived unfit. Of course, he had that serious injury, that um, muscle injury that kept him out of the uh, 2013 Champions League final. Now, whether that was related to the problem that held him up so badly later, I don't know. Maybe it was an early stage of of, of that myopathy that he had. It was this um, <clears throat> this 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 muscle illness that that, that he had, where um, it, he found it difficult to keep off weight, and um, his, his muscle recovery wasn't wasn't up to scratch. And you know, at one point, this was even threatening his career. Of course, this was mm. by that point he'd gone back to to Dortmund, but I think. Mentally, certainly, the the, the time at, at Bayern was hard, and he's talked about that. And um, he's he said, especially after at the end of that first season in Munich, where he scored the winning goal in the in the World Cup final. Of course, mm-hmm. he said he's never really had the chance to enjoy that. That it's something that's that's weighed upon him, that that brought too much expectation on him. I find that really sad. You know, he's yeah. a player who, on his day, I mean is an unbelievable player. There's no yeah. doubt about that. I think that is part of the reason why there's so much pressure on Mario Goetze because ultimately he can do stuff that other players simply can't do. And I think the the, the winning goal in the World Cup final is a case in point. It's a goal that each time you look at it, and now we've had, what, six years to look at it and we've been looking at a lot of old football during the last couple of weeks, haven't we, Marcus? It's <laughs> yeah. one I haven't actually looked at, but you on- reminded me. <laughs> well, look, look, let's let's get stuck in with the World Cup rewinds afterwards. Thank you, BBC, <laughs> and on YouTube, because every time you see that Mario Goetze goal against Argentina in the World Cup final, it gets better. You look at it and you think, there's something that's incredibly hard to do that he has made look super easy. If you go back and break it down, you know you realise what incredible intrinsic talent he actually has. But there are two, I think, quite major misconceptions with um, Mario Goetze and it, certainly the later years of, of Mario Goetze. I say later years. I mean, he's, he's not even 28 yet. He's going to be 28 in, <laughs> in, 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 in the summer. He's got so much still to give. But um, the, the, the two misconceptions are, A, that he was rubbish for Bayern, and B, that he's been a bust since he's, he's, he's gone back to, to Dortmund. And neither of those are quite true. I mean, I saw a lot of him in his his first season at, at Dortmund before the, the, the World Cup in 2013-2014. I was at that game when he, um, he, he came back to Dortmund for the first time. He was being booed so much. He had to warm up in the tunnel when he was a sub so Aww. he didn't get pelters on the touchline. And then he came on and scored a really good opening goal, which naturally he, he didn't celebrate, um, which I think showed what incredible mental strength he has. And also in the mid part of that season, um, when Frank Ribery was injured, he had a defined role. And I think that's really important as well, especially when you go to a club like Bayern, where even if you're a player of unbelievable talent, if you're young, you're basically going to have to fit in wherever even if you have cost the thick end of 40 million. And I, mm. I think that was the the, the, the case for him. And um, when he was playing as a, as a sort of locum ribbery 
on the the left wing. He was amazing. I remember him um, playing a or buying playing a cup game in the February 2014 at um, Hamburg. He absolutely tore them to bits from that position. He was so good, um, and you know when you, you you see him close up, you realise just how technically excellent he is and how much work he's got through. I think in that second spell at Dortmund as well, when fitness and health has allowed him to be, he's been really good on occasion as well. I think there's definitely a sense that it's still there. Um, but he's been managing a really serious condition, as we said, that that could have finished off his career. But since then, I do feel that Dortmund have have moved on a, a little bit, really. Um, you know, as, as we said, there's enormous um, competition in the, the, the back, the front end of that team in particular. And it's been really, really hard for them to have the patience and give him the time that he's needed. But, you know, last season, he made some, he made some big contributions, like even not being first choice. He scored goals, he made goals, and sometimes I just do think because of that talent that we were talking about before, we can expect an extraordinary amount of him. And when you consider what he's been through mentally mm. and physically, I don't know if that's fair. I think the best thing for him, when he runs out of contract uh, at Dortmund this summer, get away, maybe get out of the Bundesliga. I know there's interest in in France for him and Nice were one of the clubs who've... Um, been mentioned which is really interesting because if you think of the way that they've rehabilitated players like um, Ben Arthur Balotelli over the last couple of years uh, Dante I suppose from from Bayern um, could, could fall into that category guys who are huge names who have huge talents who needed to refine their way and did so brilliantly I can understand why that link's been made because that might be a place for him you know him and his family i think would have an absolutely great life there it's a, it's a brilliant place to to, to live and in in terms of of the work you know it's a it's a situation where it's a club that's definitely going places they're qualified for europe next season um with the way that league has ended um but also there's there's investment, there's room to grow, there are brilliant new facilities, but there's nowhere near the same sort of pressure that he's going to have had. At, oh, at and it'd be a lovely old either. job. It'd be a lovely old job. Um, I'll take that as endorsement. Yeah, it would be. You'd go to somewhere like Nice. We, we often say um, severe, don't we, with, with this kind of thing in that. Um, <laughs> he's won the World Cup. He's he won the league in Germany, blah, 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 blah. He's been getting stick. He's been getting this, that, and the other. Just like almost like, in, and I understand that you could say he's traditionally become, coming to the peak of his career, but actually going to a club like that, just go and enjoy it. Go to an ambitious club. You'll be a, a big fish in a smaller pool. They'll absolutely love him there. Uh, enjoy uh, the lifestyle, da 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 da. And who knows, have a little run maybe, or get through the group stages of the Champions League, maybe put a bit of pressure on the top of Liga or something like that. Ah. Oh. That's the that's what you want, I think. That's a lovely old job for me. Um, all right. Marcus, the minute you yes. say lovely old job, there is no greater endorsement in the football world. Still full of running and it's Götze! It's Mario Götze! It's Super Mario! He might just have won the World Cup for Germany! 
bless you, Andy. Speaking of lovely old jobs, let's uh, let's finish with this one from Colm Shanahan, who says, "Hi guys, I found myself in Belgrade for work a couple of months ago, just before the coronavirus problem really took off. Having arrived on a Sunday afternoon, I was delighted to hear that Red Star versus Partizan was to kick off in a few hours. I was able to scoop up one of the last few tickets." 10 euros, so not bad, roughly. The match itself was nothing to write home about, but I was completely distracted by what was happening at either end of the ground. The noise was cacophonous. The away fans at one point set fire to their own section. Uh, I hope nobody was hurt. Uh, What's the best atmosphere you've ever experienced and what fixture would you most want to attend if you haven't already? Also, have you ever felt unsafe at a game? Go on, Andy. There's a lot of good questions in there, Colin. I love it. And um, I I think, I guess I would separate the question in terms of best atmosphere from individual clubs to particular matches. Um, Mm -hmm. Because for for me, and we've talked about it time and time again, and Marcus has tried to wheedle more personal information out of me than strictly equitable about it. But um, the Sevilla Betis derby is the one. (laughs) For me, absolutely, it's it's brilliant, and I've 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 been to it at both stadiums. I've been to it at Heliopolis, uh, Betis Ground, and Novion Sevillas. And um, which did you prefer? It's, it's, you know what? I think probably Novion because because uh, you're a real Sevilla, Betis fan, Andy. That's why. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that'll be it. Uh, I, I think uh, <laughs> that is it with with Sevilla that the anthem. <laughs> is incredible and it's funny because it's an anthem that sounds like it must be about 80 years old but it's a decade old which is amazing because it it really grips you and every time they they sing it uh, at Sevilla even for the the less high profile matches it really is hairs on the back of the neck it's absolutely Mm. magnificent Um, and the fact that the last game I went to was finished off by a raging Gus Poyet and Charlie Oatway after they felt they'd been mm. done out of a goal, um, obviously made it ascend to the what you want. The, the next level. Mm. Um, what about the fixture you'd most likely you'd most want to attend that you haven't already? The, the fixture that I most want to attend, obviously Boca versus River, mm-hmm. is something I would like to experience very much. I, I think that that would be that would be pretty special. Um I've I've been to some good derbies. I mean like we we talked we talked about uh Sevilla versus Betis. I've been to Galatasaray versus Fenerbahce, um which mm-hmm. was terrific and um Galatasaray versus Besiktas. Um I think a big one would a Leon versus St Etienne of course. A big one actually that maybe people wouldn't be that aware of. A Braga versus Gimanesh. I've always wanted to go to that. The rivalry uh-huh. between those two is actually quite poisonous, um, and um, yeah, it's it's a tasty it's a tasty derby. There's no doubt about yeah. it. And Gimanesh, for those who aren't aware, um, are a club that, unlike every other club in Portugal that's not one of Osh the big three, it's it's a city where everyone supports Guimaraes, so they don't dare have a Porto, Benfica or Sporting Peña fan club in there because people just wouldn't have it, which Kicked is very town. unlike which is very unlike other other towns in Portugal outside um, <laughs> Lisbon and Porto. So yeah. that would that would be pretty special. Also, I wanted to finish it with have you ever felt unsafe at a game? Yes. 
And that would be going back about probably four years, three, four years. When I, w- I went to the derby between um, in Athens between uh, Panathinaikos and Olympiakos. Do you know, that was the one I was maybe going to choose because I'd, I'd love oh, to really? go to that fixture. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very jealous of Colum actually getting to go to the Belgrade derby. I think that mm. would be brilliant. Um, but yeah, I went to Panathinaikos versus Olympiakos. And um, yeah, I, I mean, if you've been to Leofodos, uh, Panathinaikos' ground, it's very old school. I mean, it's like a more ramshackle version of one of the charming old school grounds that we have here, like St. Andrews, for example. And it holds about like 18,000 they felt like there were a lot more in it. And there were a lot of people who didn't really have tickets who were in there that, that night. So it, it felt kind of over full. And what had happened is the Olympiakos team arrived, no away fans. They came straight off the coach onto the pitch for their walkabout. And Alfred Finbogason, who was on loan there at the time, um, they'd been on the pitch for a, like maybe about 30 seconds. And uh, uh-huh. maybe I've told this story on OTC before. And Finn Bogerson got hit in the back of the leg by a flare, and, which fortunately only brushed him. But at that point, the Olympiakos players were like, no, 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 no. They went off and there was all lots of speculation in the, the, the media area that they were going to refuse to play the game. And that they were negotiating with <laughs> the Greek Super League, with Panathinaikos. And, you know, the warm-ups came and went, obviously, Olympiakos didn't come out to warm up again and um, the match was delayed it didn't start when it was meant to and um, with probably about half an hour past the the regulation kickoff time um, a a, a guy in front of me um, a a Greek guy turned around to me and said "Uh, are you English and I said yes and he said well uh, they've just announced on Greek television um, that this game isn't going to happen so if I was you I'd get a tin hat on and (laughs) then basically there was this announcement in greek a lot of whistling and um a whole row of police came and formed a line on the pitch while seemingly everyone in the stands lit a flare some people from the home end some panathinaikos fans started throwing them at the police then some broke through the fences and the police and um some of the ultras had a big ruck in the middle of the pitch, a lot of objects thrown, a lot more fireworks thrown. And it, it took about 40 minutes to actually get out of the ground. And um, it, it felt that it, it was, it was the, the thing was you, you had to work out your position in the ground because the police were a target. It mm. was one of those rare times where you thought the further away I am from the police, the safer I'll be. <laughs> and that 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 like was the way Spain. we worked it out. <laughs> yeah. we, we, we we got out of the ground, and you thought, "Oh, there's a relief." And yeah. I made it round to the outside <laughs> and, and where the press area was, and I thought, "Oh, I'm fine now." And all of a sudden, these young guys with Panathinaikos scarves over their mouths mm-hmm. start like throwing rocks at all the journalists. And uh. Uh, I remember looking towards the the media entrance in at the stadium and the burly guy who was looking after that took one look mm. and he was like, right, you're on your own lads and just shut the door <laughs> and locked it. For, fortunately it passed, but um, yeah. it, it felt like a close shave at the time. My giddy aunt Andy. Yeah. I think I, there's something about police forces in Southern Europe that makes me sort of think, yeah, 
<laughs> wherever they are, I want to be somewhere else. Um, well, just to, to finish, if I can um, have a quick go. I mean, for me, I obviously don't have much experience of seeing uh, huge derbies and, and so on and so forth. Well, not just derby games, any any, any game uh, as well. But I, I mean, if I could choose a fixture, it probably would be something like Galatasaray, Fenerbahce or Olympiakos, Panathinaikos, because they're, they're huge clubs. Huge traditions, huge derbies, but it's just a, it's a little bit something different off the beaten track. Or I would like to see a Milan derby to throw a more cliched one. But in terms of best atmosphere and how uh, the most unfair, unsafe I've ever felt at a game, those two answers roll into one. When I went to see Boca Juniors play, uh, the atmosphere was was incredible, but I got spat on a number of times. But these were the away fans who they stupidly put above us. And uh, I may have mentioned this on the ramble before, but one of the away fans, uh, Kilmez, was the team. Um, which is also the name of a beer. Um, a, a guy kind of leaned over, wriggled his way over the little fence where they were and tried to piss on everybody. But fortunately, we'd all dispersed at that point. Um, so lots of bodily fluids flying around uh, the, the the chocolate box, as it's affectionately known, at Boca Juniors. And I think, ladies and gentlemen, I've talked too much and we should end the show <laughs> okay <laughs> we got out safely though I will say that um, so yes there we are the end of the mailbag once again do get your questions and you can email us of course um, which is uh, where we've got some of those questions uh, or get on get involved on the discord app uh, as well so thank you very much you, you patreon subscribing beauties and thank you very much Andy Brassel as always my good man thanks Ramblers real pleasure look forward to more of your questions soon <laughs> we'll speak to you next week. Cheery bye. This was a Stakhanov production.